This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Before I have us uh, stand for the reading of God's Word, I thought I'd give a few introductory uh, remarks. We're starting a new series uh, today on the book of Galatians, and I wanted to tell you my main reason uh, for picking Galatians as the next book for us uh, to work our way through. Here it is. It seems to me that in the history of the church, God has used Galatians more than any other book to bring about renewal and revival. I believe that the history of the church shows that, in, that, that the in-depth study of and the deep meditation upon Galatians The history of the church shows that that has caused more renewal, more rejuvenation, more revival for the church than the study of and the meditation upon any other biblical book. And so, of course, many of us know about Martin Luther's study of Galatians and the fact that his commentary on Galatians fueled the Reformation in the earliest 16th century. The the Reformation of course, gave birth to the Protestant church and the Protestant church stood in opposition to the Roman Catholic church. And the Protestant church said, uh, our salvation is not by our works, it's by God works. It's not our doing, it's his doing. It's simply our receiving this grace through faith. And so Martin Luther, again, during the Reformation, he wrote that famous commentary on Galatians. And some 200 years later, men and women were gathered together and they were studying Galatians. And in that study, a man read to the group the preface to Luther's commentary. And what is known historically as the Great Awakening began that night. As John Wesley and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, they listened to their friend as he read to them Galatians and then Luther's preface on Galatians. Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s was used by God to bring about significant revival to and through London, not only in Europe, but but in the States. And you, of course, by now know what his favorite book was, right? Galatians. It's said that he read Galatians and, and, and John Brown's commentary on Galatians over and over and over. Our own denomination was influenced significantly by a PCA pastor uh, named Jack Miller. And what's known as the sonship movement within our denomination and beyond is this emphasis on the church returning to the preaching of the gospel and to give week in and week out the message of grace, the message of repentance, the message of faith, the message of humility and teachability, the the message of dependence upon God, the importance of community. The sonship movement was a result of Jack Miller meditating on Galatians, reading through Luther's preface to Galatians. In fact, I believe 100 years from now, maybe 10 years from now, little podunk pastors like me are going to reference Tim Keller and the impact he has made around the globe. And I think little podunk pastors like me are going to say, and you know, Tim Keller was Jack Miller's disciple And and you know, Tim Keller studied Galatians more than any other book. And you know that he wrote more extensively on Galatians and preached more extensively on Galatians than any other book. And so if you you study the history and the growth of the church, the in-depth study and the meditation upon Galatians has caused more spiritual renewal, more spiritual rejuvenation, more spiritual revival than the study of and the meditation upon any other book. So the question has to be asked, is this my intention or my desire or my ambition to start a revival of historic proportions? No. Maybe five years ago. 
not today. Really, all I personally want is a little bit of renewal in my own life. If I could be completely honest, I, I feel the need for revival in my own life right now like I never have before. I, I kind of feel, and I don't kind of, I do feel that I personally understand so much about the Bible and about the historic Jesus and the theoretical gospel. But I have found myself in the last few months lacking power and lacking joy, lacking freedom, lacking peace, lacking mission, lacking service. The criticisms of others seem to be stinging me and haunting me like never before. People used to criticize me for accurate things and it didn't bother me. Now I'm getting criticized for things that aren't accurate and it's killing me. I'm more anxious than I've been in previous seasons of joy and peace and freedom. I'm more jealous than I've been in previous seasons of contentment and rest. I'm less merciful, less just, and less evangelistic than the other chapters of my life. And so I need a season of renewal and I need a series on Galatians. And I felt like my best chance for revival is unpacking this for us. And maybe you're at the same place, maybe you're not, but this is where I am and this is where I think we are. Now I want to say for the record, I'm not opposed to a historic revival if God so please, but my personal prayer is for our revival. And so our text for this morning is Galatians 1, 1 to 5. It's known as the salutation or the greeting of this epistle. And all letters, all epistles from this time began in the same way. They all started with the author's name. Uh, They followed that with the recipient's name. And then the author would give this opening remark that was going to prepare their audience uh, for the content of the letter. And so what I want to do is I want us to have us stand now. We're going to pray together this corporate prayer of illumination. And then I'm going to read the text. And we're going to dive into the study of and the meditation upon Galatians. Let's pray aloud together. Lord God, we wish to see Jesus. By your Spirit's power, give us eyes to see his glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. The sermon text is Galatians 1, 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle. Not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Okay, from this salutation, I want us to consider the context of Galatians, the content in Galatians, and the communication to the Galatians. All right? So first, the context of Galatians. And in a word, this should be interesting, uh, the entire series, because the context of Galatians is conflict. The context is a very, very serious disagreement and and a a very, very hot argument. In a moment, I'm going to show you the clear evidence from the letter of this fact, but let me give you an introduction to it and let let me summarize it for you here at the start. At the end of verse 2, Paul writes to the churches of Galatia. Okay, so in Paul's first missionary journey, that journey that's recorded in Acts 13 and 14, Paul preached the gospel uh, to and planted churches in four cities in the Roman province of Galatia, which is essentially now south southwestern uh, Turkey. 
And, and as was his, his custom after raising up leaders for these churches, Paul moved on in his mission, but also as was his custom, uh, he would stay in touch with these churches and he would supervise these churches through, through epistles and through messengers. And so we know from the book of Galatians that sometime after Paul's departure from Galatia, these, these false teachers arrived there and they began to attack uh, Paul's credibility as an apostle and they began to attack Paul's message, that is, Paul's gospel. And so essentially these false teachers were telling these young churches and these brand new baby Christians, they were telling them your faith in Jesus is insufficient for salvation. The false teachers didn't teach that Jesus was unnecessary. He was undeniable. They didn't teach he was unnecessary. They taught that he was inadequate, that he was unable to save them from all that plagued them. And so the false teachers were saying that, that in addition to faith in Jesus, th- these converts, that they needed to be circumcised. They needed to not just follow Jesus, but also follow Moses and follow the law of Moses, that, that they had to become Jewish and participate in these certain feasts uh, every year. If they really wanted to be saved, if they really wanted to be God's children, if they really wanted to be in the community, Jesus wasn't enough. Essentially, they were saying to the Gentiles, Jesus got you into the community, but now you have some things to do if you want to stay in the community. And again, to to discredit his message, the false teachers were saying of Paul, he's a charlatan. He's an imposter. We live in Jerusalem. We've seen the 12. We know who's there. We know who Jesus established as the apostles of his church. This man isn't one of them. This man hasn't come from them. Don't trust him. And so to review, Paul arrives around 48 AD in Galatia and he preaches the gospel and he sees many Gentiles apparently converted in those four four cities. And after leaving a few months later, uh, he hears that these false teachers have come behind him and they've attacked his apostleship and they've attacked his message. And he writes in defense of himself and the gospel, he writes Galatians. And so the context for Galatians is conflict, argumentation, doctrinal dispute. I'm going, to, I'm going to show it to you from Galatians. I'm going to show it to you in an obvious way, and I'm going to show it in a, in a less obvious way. First, if you'll just listen to verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1, we're going, to, we're going to look at this in detail next week. If you'll just listen, you're going to see how obvious this conflict is. And by the way, you should know in every other letter written by Paul in the New Testament, every other letter, he says something nice about his audience, either in the salutation or right after the salutation. And so listen to verses 6 through 8 in that place where normally Paul would talk about their faith or talk about God's work in them, or he would talk about his love for them and how dear they are to him. This is when that normally comes. Listen to what he says. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. That's nice for let him go to hell. What's the context? Conflict. But, but also, less obvious until you understand what's going on, unless you understand that culture, conflict is seen in verse 1. Look there yourselves. It says, Paul, an apostle, period. He doesn't start out any other letter that way. And then he enters into argumentation, not from men nor through men, not from men nor through man, but an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. 
listen for just a second. There are two types of apostles in the New Testament. There were those we will call lowercase a apostles. These apostles were sent with messages from God, but they were sent through men. And then in the Bible, there are also uppercase A apostles. They were sent with messages from God, but also verse one, they were sent with messages through God. So when Jesus would show up to to a man in his resurrected body and and he would teach that man and, and he would commission that man and he would send that man with a message, that man was an uppercase A apostle. And Paul is basically saying, as brash as it sounds in verse one, he's saying, I'm an uppercase A apostle. I have pushed to talk with Jesus. I have a direct connect to Jesus. You're absolutely right that I'm not from Jerusalem, nor am I one of the 12. In fact, you don't want me to be from them. You want me to be from Jesus. I'm equal to the 12. Paul is saying, Jesus and his physical resurrected body appeared to me, communicated with me, sent me to you to tell you some things. And that's the context, conflict. Who is Jesus? What exactly did Jesus do? What can Jesus do and not do for me? But before we we transition into the second point, I just want to share a few thoughts. This is an introductory sermon. I'm going to introduce ideas that I'm going to unpack across the months. So just listen to this, a few thoughts. First, every renewal movement that I mentioned in in the introduction, every renewal movement in the introduction happened in the midst of conflict. Every revival I mentioned in the introduction was attacked by or is being attacked by the established church. Discredited by those who call themselves conservatives and keepers of tradition. Now now to be clear, revivals that make a difference, they're not anti-church. They plant new churches and they revitalize old churches. But what we'll call established churches tend to work against the movement which ironically in God's power helps the movement go forward. For example, maybe you've heard of the preachers of the Great Awakening and how they preached in the open field. And at first we think that was because the size of the crowd demanded that they be out in the field for the the venue to handle the crowd. But that's not why Wesley and Whitfield preached in the field. They preached in the field because the established churches kicked them out of the churches and wouldn't let them preach their sermons of radical grace and radical freedom and radical mission in their building. All historic revivals happen in the midst of conflict. But related to that, what what might this mean for us if we actually experience personal renewal in this series? It means that we should at least expect debate, if not conflict, if not separation from those who we are in a relationship with now who desire a more moderate or a more, a more socially acceptable gospel. And so we'll expand on that in time today and beyond. But for now, I just want you to put that in the lockbox. Personal renewal happens in the midst of conflict. Secondly, if that's the context of Galatians, what's the content in Galatians, okay? How does Paul answer their charges against his teaching? Remember what I said before, that in all letters or epistles from, from this time, there was the salutation. And the salutation was the author, Paul, an apostle. In the salutation was the recipient to the churches of Galatia. And in the salutation was an opening remark that gave you some sense for what was coming in the letter. And so verses 3 through 5 are a preview of what's going to come in Galatians. They're a preview of the content of the letter. So pick up in verse 3. Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us. 
The NIV rightly says, rescues us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so now it's my opinion that the NIV has chosen the best word here. The best word here is rescue, not deliver. And I know there's not a whole lot of difference between those two words, but I want you to know that Galatians 1.4 is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used to describe our salvation. And I think Paul, who uses the word for deliverance in a lot of places, for example, Colossians 1, the call to worship today, I think Paul has picked this strong and unique word because he knows the context into which he's writing, and he wants them to know that this is a rescue. Every other instance of this word in the New Testament describes a desperate situation in which the captive has no possibility of escape in and of themselves. Every time this is used in the New Testament, it's to talk about someone kidnapped and one who is, who is completely dependent on the work of someone else to free them. At the core, this word means to be pulled out or to be extracted. So for example, Acts 7.10, Stephen is describing God's rescue of Joseph from the pit his brothers put him in and from the dungeon Potiphar had put him in. In Acts uh, 12, Luke uses the word to describe that, describe that angelic rescue of Peter. Listen to what he says of Peter. Sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, uh, multiple sentries at the door guarding the prison. No hope in and of himself. Acts 23, Claudius is writing to Felix and he says, I rescued Paul from a large angry mob that was intent on killing him. Thousands of people uh, wanting to kill Paul. And again, my point is this, in all of these situations, the one in need of rescue had nothing to offer uh, in their their situation. All they could do was receive a rescue. All they could do is hope in a hero. And so remember the conflict. What exactly did Jesus do? What exactly does Jesus offer? Uh, Does Jesus just get me into the community at the lowest rank of the community and, and leave my promotion up to me? Does Jesus just get me into the community and my ongoing membership in the community is paid by me? Is he a consultant or a guide who teaches me and how to work my way out of the problem? Paul says, no, he's a rescuer. He's a hero. My absolute favorite use of this word for rescue in the New Testament that I think helps us understand what Paul is getting at here is found in Matthew 5. It's a very famous passage, but you would never know that it's the word rescue. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out, pluck it out, rescue. I just want you to think about the object in need. The object in need of rescue could do nothing to get out of the bondage that it's in. Can the eyeball say to itself, let's get out of this socket. Let's detach and move on. Your your eye can't say to itself, you know what? I don't like being here anymore. I'm checking out. This is enough. I'm buying a self-help book at Barnes & Noble. In the same way that our eye cannot come out of its socket unless we pluck it out, we can do nothing to get ourselves out of the predicament we find ourselves in because of our sin. Every other world religion tells us what we have to do to be in blessed communion with God. Only the gospel of Jesus tells us what God did to bring us into blessed communion with him. The founder and leader of every other world religion is a teacher or an example. If you were to go up to the founders of other world religions and call them savior, they would look at you like you're crazy and they would remind you, I'm a teacher. The founder and the leader of Christianity is a hero. He is at first a rescuer. 
And so the illustration has been used many times, but it's worth repeating. When a man is drowning, the last thing he needs is a teacher to shout from the shore, commands to him about swimming. He needs a hero who knows how to swim to jump in and bring him to the shore. More accurately for what the Bible says about us in our condition due to our sin, if a man flatlines after a heart attack, he doesn't need a book on CPR. He needs a hero to perform CPR. Christianity, Paul says, is not a religion. It is not self-help. It is not guidance on how to find your way home. Christianity is what Jesus did to bring you home. Look a little closer what Paul says about this rescue. Look what Paul says about where we needed to be extracted from. Verse 4. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. In verse 4, Paul here talks about two realities that held us captive. First, our sins placed us under the condemnation of a holy and perfect God. And second, our rebellion against God did not give us a freedom unto ourselves, but placed us in the captivity of the prince of the present evil age. The Bible consistently teaches Colossians 1, the call to worship is another example of this. The Bible teaches that in our rebellion against God, we did not place ourselves uh, only under his wrath. We also placed ourselves into the kingdom of his enemy. What Paul calls the dominion of darkness in Colossians 1. And so in Jesus, we need a hero who doesn't just rescue us from the wrath of God. We need a hero to rescue us from the dominion of darkness. And it says in verse four, he gave himself. He sacrificed himself for our sins. And also in him, we have rescue from the captivity we have to the enemy. And so Paul is preaching this gospel. God became a man in Jesus Christ. After living a perfect life, he died on the cross for our sins, paying with his death and blood the debt that we owed to God. But not just that, in his death, Jesus enters into the kingdom of darkness. He enters into the depths of the present evil age and he unites himself to us where we are. He ties himself to us where we are. And when God raises him from the dead, when God vindicates his beautiful and righteous life, he doesn't just raise Jesus alone. He extracts us. He plucks us out. He rescues us. The book of Matthew teaches that in his death and resurrection, Jesus shattered the gates of hell. The book of Revelation says that Jesus in his life, death and resurrection, obtained for himself the the keys to Hades and death. Paul says in Colossians that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, that he might be preeminent, he might be first, he might be king in all things. So in our sin, we tend to think, I fell under the wrath of God and I placed myself out into isolation. But the Bible says we placed ourselves under the captivity of God's enemy and we don't need just a little help and a little guidance and a little pointing in the right direction. We need a hero who will die for our sins and bring us back to life in his righteous resurrection. And so we're going to learn in Galatians that if we want personal renewal, we'll have to continually define ourselves in more desperate ways than we currently are. We'll have to continually define Jesus in more sufficient ways than we currently do. And we'll have to become increasingly aware of the spiritual rescue that Jesus is providing us. The socially acceptable church 
doesn't like to talk about spiritual war and walking in the spirit. The socially acceptable church doesn't like to talk about a totally desperate human with nothing to give to God other than need and desperation. The socially acceptable church doesn't like to talk about Jesus giving his life for us. They like to say he gave it as an example to us. And the Bible says, no, it was for us. And the reason we don't like him to give his life for us is because the only logical response to that is to give him our life in return. If we experience renewal, we will have to think of ourselves in a much harsher fashion than we currently do. And we'll have to see Jesus to be more beautiful than we currently do. And we will have to begin to understand there's a lot going on around us. This is from where we'll experience revival. Finally, for today, the communication to the Galatians. Catch this. In the context of Galatians and in the content in Galatians, when I said it that way in the outline, the word Galatians refers to the, the book of the Bible that we're studying. But in our third point, I want you to see the communication to the Galatians. I'm talking about the actual people in 48 or 49 AD who read this letter. The communication to the Galatians. So as you go through this letter, it's going to be awkward because Paul is going to keep defending, he'll keep defending his apostleship. He'll continue to reference his credentials. And it's going to be a little awkward for us. Uh, and, and we're going to think, uh, isn't this just a little bit of pride? Isn't this just a little bit of a power move? I mean, is this really necessary? Does he have to start the letter Paul, an apostle, period? Uppercase A apostle, period. Couldn't he start a little more low, a little more humble? Not if you think about it. Paul defends his apostleship to give weight to his message. Or to be more accurate, Paul defends his apostleship to give weight to Jesus' message. So he opens the letter as strong as he possibly could. And he says, I want you to pay attention to me because what is coming from me is not originating from me. And it's not coming, it's not coming uh, through me. It comes from and through Jesus Christ to you. This is what you have to hear from Jesus in this place where you're struggling with these false teachers. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God, our father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it communicate to the Galatians? Two things. He tells them God is giving you grace and not just mercy. And he's also telling them based on that grace, you already have peace with the Father. He's already cool with you. So first, Paul is saying God is giving you grace and not just mercy. Listen to this. Essentially, the false teacher view of Jesus, their view of Jesus was that he provided mercy and not grace. Mercy is to not pay for wrong we've done. Grace is to receive favor and blessing that we don't deserve. And Paul is like, it's not just mercy with Jesus, it's mercy and grace. Imagine that I tell Riley and Gentry to go and clean their room. And imagine that I tell them, if you don't clean the room, there will be negative consequences. But I also follow that up very quickly with the fact that if you do clean the room, we will go to yogurt land and we will celebrate, which some nights feels like heaven to our family. And let's say that they begin on the endeavor uh, to which I sent them. But in time, they begin to goof off. They find toys they haven't played with in a while. They, they, they enjoy uh, uh, playing with one another and running around the room. And a few, a few minutes later, I walk up to the room and their room is more messy than it was than when they started. Mercy is not making them experience the negative circumstances, the negative consequences. 
Grace is taking them to yogurt land and celebrating. The false teachers are telling the Galatians, Jesus covered your past, but your performance is needed for the future. Mercy, but not grace. And Paul is saying this theology right here will rob us of the power for present day renewal. And Paul is saying, oh no, the key to present day renewal is to know and believe and rest in the truth that God's acceptance of you and God's blessing of you and God's doting on you in the future has nothing to do with how you're doing today. It has everything to do with his grace. Paul is saying that will unlock us and release us into personal renewal. Paul, commissioned by Jesus, tells the Galatians, grace to you, unmerited favor to you, not just mercy for the past, grace for the future, not just forgiveness for what you've done so far, but credit for all that Jesus did in his life. This is what Paul is saying to the Galatians. This is what, I'll say it this way. This is what Jesus is saying to the Galatians through Paul. And that's why Paul is so adamant that he's an apostle. Don't miss what I have to tell you. Grace to you and peace, shalom, reconciliation with God the Father. Three times in the salutation, three times Paul says to the Galatians, God is already your father. You're already at yogurt land. It's not going to get any better from here in terms of your relationship with him. You just have to wake up to that reality. And so we're going to learn in this series that our personal renewal and our personal revival and our personal rejuvenation, our hope and our joy and our freedom and our rest and our energy and our strength for the mission will come to the extent that we receive this grace and live out this peace. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that with you it's all or nothing. We thank you that you did not leave even the tiniest little bit for us to do. We thank you that when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, you awakened us with your grace and your beauty and your spirit and your hope. We thank you that what we need to know and what we need to be true is already true. We ask Holy Spirit that you would come and open our eyes to these realities. Make us aware of what we, what we already are and who we already are and the future that is already certain. God, I pray that you would show us very practically over this semester, show us very practically what gospel we substitute for the real gospel. Would you show us for our own sake and for your glory what we're adding to your gospel instead of resting in what Jesus has done for us? God, we know that every person in this room, from the one trying to figure it out to the one walking with you for 80 years, every person in this room needs to hear, yet again, the good news of Jesus Christ. Spirit, would you proclaim it to our hearts, even now, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.